Dr. James Robertson, award-winning author, shares his thoughts on Southern generals of the Civil War when we return. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Do you dream of owning your own business? Franchising may hold the key. Invest in a proven business with proven results. Not sure where to start? Franchise Solutions can help. Franchise Solutions has helped thousands of entrepreneurs find a business to fit their goals and dreams. Find information on hundreds of franchise and business opportunities, as well as tips, advice, and tons of franchise-related resources. Franchise Solutions. Find the business that's right for you. Visit us online today at www.FranchiseSolutions.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. God save the South, God save the South, her altars and firesides, God save the South. Now that the war is nigh, now that we arm to die, chanting our battle cry, freedom or death, chanting our battle cry, freedom This is Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm Gaston Espinoza. With me today is Dr. James Robertson. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Robertson. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. I'd love to pick back up on where you left off before our break about the role of faith on the battlefield. One of the most provocative things you said this evening is that the first casualty of the war was the Christian church, and I find that fascinating and very telling. Could you share with our, our listeners the explanation that each church gave in the North and the South, both for the war and as a justification to defend the South. What, what the churches did? Yes. I, I didn't understand the question. You say, how did the church defend its position? Yes. How did, how did the Southern Baptist Church, for example, defend slavery and the Confederacy? And how did the Northern Baptist Church, for example, respond? What was I, the argument? I, I can you... give you one example. I think that would answer your question completely, and it goes back to the split in the Baptist Church. The Northern Baptists were claiming that uh, no slaveholder could be a Christian. And the Southern Baptists argued uh, that uh, God had ordained slavery, not the Southerners. And so the, they, they explained their stand there. The split in the Methodist Church came over the fact that uh, the Bishop of Georgia, a Methodist Bishop of Georgia, refused 
on demand of the church to free three slaves he owned, uh, claiming that um, he did not ordain them as to be slaves. They were slaves when he bought them, uh, that uh, slavery was approved uh, in the American Constitution. It was a way of life in the South, and he saw no need to be uh, uh, pressured uh, by simply his own denomination. And so once you get into these kinds of political religious squabbles, then you're going to have real trouble, and those two, those two churches were the first to have real trouble. Were there dissenting voices even within the Southern Baptist? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes, absolutely. And dissenting voices in the North as well. Uh, this was not uh, a, a, a clear-cut issue. Nothing pertaining to the Civil War is clear-cut. That's why it remains both controversial and fascinating. I find your comments about the role of faith in the battlefield interesting. I'm curious as to whether or not the generals themselves were equally committed to the faith. Yes, indeed. Oh, yes, indeed. And uh, I think the movie Gods and Generals goes to great lengths to point this out. Um, most Many of these generals were extremely devout. Uh, here in the South, of course, Jackson and Lee are looked at as, uh, as the very epitome of Christian soldiers. And others uh, shared the same faith, but so did others on, on the northern side. I once edited the 900-plus letters of a New Jersey general named Robert McAllister, and he was a pillar in the Presbyterian Church, and I found it interesting that quite often what he was writing to his wife were the same things that a general like Jackson was writing to his wife. And God is with us. I have faith that the Almighty will see the right side on to victory and things such as this. Do we know the religious backgrounds of Robert E. Lee and Jackson? Yes, very much so. Uh, well, I'm quite familiar with Jackson, of course. He he was uh, an abused orphan um, who spent his early manhood trying to find a religious home. He was reading the Bible as a teenager, but he never could find a denomination with which he was comfortable. And he was in his uh, oh, late 20s when he moved to Lexington to Virginia to become a professor at the Virginia Military Institute. And it was there that he found the Presbyterian Church, and uh, he joined that church in 1851 and became, in my estimation, not so much a loyal Presbyterian as a devout Calvinist. He supported Calvinism to the fullest, including the uh, theory of predestination. And this is why Jackson had no fear of either combat or death, because God had already ordained and by his faith when he would die, so he didn't have to worry about it. Fascinating, fascinating. And then Lee, of course, coming from... Uh, the aristocracy of Virginia was a devout Episcopalian, and uh, Lee spent a good time on, of his military career on his knees, and he read daily from his Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. Did the generals from the North and the South who had a strong faith, did they believe that God was on their side, or did they believe that God would give victory to the person whose side was most righteous? I think it's more the former than the other, because in a war, you always think your side is, is, is the right. And so but I think most of these generals, like McAllister of New Jersey, Jackson of Virginia, just felt that God was with them. And this, uh, this mighty scourge is swept over the land, and the best side would ultimately win. And, of course, he, whoever, whether he were McAllister or Jackson, he was on the best, on the right side. Do we have any letters or diaries that capture how people like Jackson or Lee or others processed the loss in terms of their spiritual lives? You mean the loss of men? The loss of men, but also the loss of the war. I mean, if they believed that God was on their side and they lost the war, that must have surely impacted 
their faith, maybe. It did, it, and did, and uh, I, I, I travel around the country speaking about Jackson, and I'm quite often asked what he would have done after the war, uh, and after the, the Confederate defeat. And I honestly, I honestly don't. I'm honestly not convinced Jackson could have survived it. His faith was so deep, it was so all-consuming that I think if this, if he had lived to see Confederate defeat, he would have surely felt that God had forsaken him, and it would have been a blow from which he could not uh, recover. In the case of Lee and the hundreds of other Southerners who were still alive at defeat, uh, they simply used the old axiom, God's will be done, and uh, go and get on with life as best they could. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Jackson and Lee, two really remarkable generals during the war. How do they compare? Well, now you're asking a Virginian to talk about <laughs> Jackson and Lee, so this this is highly slanted, of course, but uh, I, I think they form a model military partnership. I think what each lacked, the other had, what each wanted and couldn't get, the other could. Uh, they were not contemporaries. Lee was 17 years older than Jackson. Uh, they were different in background and upbringing as one could possibly be Lee, a product of Virginia aristocracy, Jackson, a product of of a mountain of poverty, and not so much poverty, but being an orphan. Um, Lee, a, a brilliant student, Jackson struggling all the way. Uh, but yet when the war comes, they, they, they find one another. They find in each an aggressiveness that the other has. More importantly, they find in each a faith that the other has. And I like to use a football metaphor in describing the 11 months that Lee and Jackson performed so brilliantly together. I think Lee was was the great quarterback who could break the huddle, come up to the line. He could look over at the defenses, see the weakness, and then call the play. And once he gets the ball, then he hands it off to his star running back, Jackson, and turns Jackson loose, and, and the result is a touchdown and victory after victory after victory. And in this respect, I think they really have no peer for a one-two fighting machine in military history. Now, if Lee's the star quarterback for the South, Who's the star quarterback for the North, and how do they compare? Well, Grant will be the star quarterback for the for the North. He he will win the war. Uh, he deserves the victory, as uh, deserves all the accolades as the victor of that war. But Grant just did not have the personality, or the appearance, or the charisma, if you will, to uh, to be the great motivating leader that Lee was. Uh, men just did not know Grant. He was uh, very taciturn, very quiet, very reserved, very withdrawn. Uh, but a brilliant mind, a brilliant mind, and a man uh, motivated by, by sheer determination. If it doesn't work this way, we'll try it that way. If it doesn't work that way, we'll try the same thing this other way. Uh, a man who just would grab hold and not give up. And this is what it really took to do, ultimately defeat the Confederacy. And so Grant, I think, uh, might not have all the, uh, all the glow in history that Lee does, but Grant is the victor of the Civil War. Let's talk a little bit about that glow in Lee, since many of our listeners may not be as familiar with Lee's leadership style. What um, what enduring admiration or respect did Lee's soldiers have for him, and why? Well, when the Civil War came, Lee was probably the greatest soldier in America. Of course, Winfield Scott was the general-in-chief and still living, but Scott was 74, 300 pounds, uh, he was one of the, the biggest monuments in the city of Washington. But Lee was actually offered early in, in the uh, contest supreme command of all the Union forces, and he had to turn it down. He turned it down because his native state had left the Union. 
and a lot of people do not understand that, but I think a simple look at the calendar uh, will, will give you the answer. Virginia was settled in 1607. The Constitution of the United States was created in 1787, which means Virginia was 180 years old when the United States was born. Virginia Lees had lived in Virginia since 1634, and so the roots of the Lees were, were very deep in the ground. That ground was Virginia, not the United States. And so when the contest begins and, and Lee is forced to make a choice, he simply said, I cannot draw my sword against my family, my birthright, my state. And he went with the South. <clears throat> and people respected him dearly for this. He was a military genius in the Civil War. You could, we could spend the whole hour just talking about Lee himself. He, he fought against insurmountable odds for the better part of four years. He quit only because there was nothing else to do. He was surrounded out of munitions, out of uh, supplies, out of men. But he, he surrendered honorably. And then he capped it all after the war by, instead of accepting several lucrative business ventures offered to him, he took the presidency of small, impoverished Washington College in Lexington, Virginia. It was uh, half burned to the ground. It was financially broke. It had four faculty members and 40 students. And in five years, uh, Lee um, turned it into one of the finest liberal arts schools in America. And he did it by using the, the, uh, the tact that he once told a woman who wanted him to uh, discipline her sons because they wanted to go north to college. And Lee replied, Madam, forget your animosity and make your sons Americans. And he set an example for bringing the country back together again. Uh, that was just absolutely marvelous. And at his death in 1870, and he survived the war by only five years, a whole nation mourned. And of all the dozens and dozens of eulogies that poured in, the overwhelming number came from the North. And today, of course, uh, at Little Washington College is known as Washington and Lee University. But what I find very, very moving is that when you meet a graduate of that school, more often than not, if you ask him where he went to school, he will not say Washington and Lee or WNL. He'll say, I went to General Lee's college, and that's enough. Remarkable. What did the Southern generals like Lee do to motivate and develop this kind of remarkable loyalty from their soldiers? That was because wars back then were fought that way. Wars were, were personal things. Uh, I've never done a study, but I'm, I, I know what the results would be if I undertook one of what rank in the army suffered the heaviest casualties in percentage. I'm sure the Brigadier Generals. Really? Because uh, in battle, uh, units went forward in terms of brigades, and brigades were commanded by Brigadier Generals, and they led by personal examples. In these attacks, the, the leader is the general out in front leading the men, so obviously he's going to be one of the first to get killed. It's not the go for go ahead, man, I'm going to stay back here. It's come on, men, follow me. And this kind of personal leadership is, is one thing that makes the Civil War so fascinating, particularly to students of military history, because the human personal factors enter into play so much. Now, obviously, these generals were not always successful, but that's mainly because the death rate among the bravest was always so high. But I think northern and southern generals alike, uh, we see this. Uh, you see it captured uh, over and over again on film uh, in in the movie Gettysburg, we were told over and over how Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain led his 20th Maine forward himself. Uh, today, however, with the way wars are fought via technology, 
uh, the officers stay behind and punch the computer keys, and everything is done by technology. But back then, it was personal example. And those men who demonstrated the uh, attributes of good leadership always had the great loyalty of their soldiers. If Jackson, if Jackson and Lee were such fine generals, why did the South lose? South lost the war because of one thing, that half of that team went down in 1863. Just Stonewall Jackson died as a result of wounds at the Battle of Chancellorsville, which left Lee alone to fight the rest of the war for the South. But basically, the South just did not have the resources to continue this war over a long haul. If the Confederacy was going to win, it had to be basically in the first round knockout. The South just did not have the strength, the supplies, the men, the wherewithal to wage a long, drawn-out war. Now, many Southern officials felt that if they could just play for time, just hold on and let the North wear itself out, uh, that the South would win by default. You know, if the war ends in a tie, the South still wins because the North has not brought the South back into the Union. But to play that long, drawn-out affair requires a lot of uh, resources, and the South just didn't have that. This you know, is remarkable. Said that, uh, I've heard the figure go up to as much as uh, two out of every three Southern men of military age served in the Army. So surely half of all eligible Southern males uh, served in the Army. You know, 250,000 of them were killed, probably another half million or so, uh, perhaps came home permanently maimed with minus an eye, an arm, a leg, a tubercular, or uh, possessed of uh, residues of malaria, etc. Their health just shattered by the war. And, you know, this, this was after four years. There was just no way the South could maintain this fight over any long stretch. Well, this was remarkable. And I think after our break, I'd like to ask you, how did the women respond to these um, horrific battles? I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. James Robertson. This is Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm Gastona Spinoza. After our break, we'll talk about the role of women in the war and the legacy of the war. We'll ask whether or not it was a divided nation. Thank you.